Now, gracious God, I pray that you would take the words of worship, the words of scripture, the meditations of my heart, and speak to us, Father God. May your Holy Spirit move among us and make us determined to follow after your will and follow your way. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen. How many of you have one of these planted in your yard? (laughs) The wonderful pompous grass, right? And in the South, we know the best way to prune one of these is to set it on fire. (laughs) So it looks like this, right? You know, it's, uh, it looks dead. <laughs> the flame kills the dead grass, the weeds, and whatever may be living inside. Now, let me just give you a word of caution. Don't do this without doing your homework. Uh, make sure the plant's not too close to your house or your neighbor's house. And I am in no way endorsing this as a means of horticulture. But it's amazing what can happen when you do this. Because in a few weeks after you burn it, it looks like this it starts to bring forth green plants again. The death of the plant creates the opportunity for a new growth and new life. You know, we see the same thing happening all around us. We've come out of the dead of winter much earlier than normal. Grass is turning green. Trees are budding. And I even bought fresh strawberries this week. You know, who buys strawberries the first of March, right? But we can't have spring without winter. In order for there to be new life, the old must die. Jesus said it this way in John 12. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. This idea of death to life is woven throughout creation. It's the core of our faith. And central to the Gospels, death to life. I mentioned this past Wednesday, a record number of people participated in Ash Wednesday services. My thumb is still stained with ashes. And the ashes that we use on Ash Wednesday come from the burned palm branches that our children processed in with last Palm Sunday worship service. Death to life. You know, Lent is a 40-day journey to Easter, not counting Sundays. So now we are in the 36th day of the Lenten journey. And my challenge for all of us this morning is that we would together commit to walk in the way of the cross, in the way of the cross toward Easter. You know, that we have four Sundays of Lent Uh, These are like many Easter's pointing us to the resurrection. But in order to get to Easter, we must navigate Good Friday. The only way to get to the resurrection and new life in Jesus is through Jesus' death on the cross. On Friday morning, we had one of our men share a praise item, how he had been sharing faith with a friend of his, a co-worker had a burden for his salvation. And the man was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. And after going and talking with him, this man reported that he was ready to make a decision to invite Christ into his life. And he said, we have to face death 
before we can discover real life. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, Lent is about giving up something good, becoming new, dying to something so we can discover something better. Now, during Lent, I'm giving up several things, and one of those is chocolate. And we all know that dark chocolate is really good for you, right? And so, but when I have a craving for that wonderful dark chocolate, I'm reminded to turn to God in prayer and to find something even better in him. Now, I got to confess to you that Sunday began for me last night at 12.05 as I tasted a little bit of dark chocolate to get ready for the sermon today. This morning, we embark on a new sermon series called The Way, The Way. A key verse to us, I believe, and a key verse for us as Christians in this world of relativism is John 14, 6, when Jesus answered and says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Every new member class, I teach the plan of salvation, of how to find salvation in Jesus Christ. And I share that we believe that Jesus is not one of many ways, but he is the way. And we want to talk about the way of Jesus and the way to the cross, the journey that Jesus took to provide salvation for all of us. Now, there are a lot of religions in our world that believe there are other ways. But as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, he says. Now, Don read our text for us and says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He turned his eyes away from something good to something greater. I love our picture up there on the screen, and you can see the cross on the horizon. Jesus turned his eyes away from something good to something greater. Now, he was doing good things, doing kingdom work, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the word of God to the people. But he said, there's something greater that I must do, and I must go to the cross. His eyes were fixed on his purpose, the salvation of the world. My salvation, your salvation, the salvation of the world. Now, I love the definition of resolve. It means to decide firmly on a course of action. Jesus decided firmly on a course of action, and it involved a cross at Calvary. The men sang about it, the cross at Calvary. You know, this, these words that Jesus spoke were prophesied hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, verse 7, we find these words, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will. Determined to do his will. It is my prayer that over these next 36 days of Lent, that you and I will be determined to do the will of God. And I know that I will not be put to shame, writes Isaiah. You see, Jesus is focused. He's focused on the cross. 
It's on the horizon. My good friend John Ed Matheson tells about lion tamers who go into the cage with lions carrying a four-legged stool. (laughs) Now, they also carry whips and poles and pistols, but they have a stool. And the purpose of the stool is fascinating. The lion tamer always holds the stool by the back and points the four legs toward the face of the lion. And this lion tries to focus on all four legs at once. And when he does this, a kind of paralysis comes over him. He becomes weak. He becomes disabled because his attention is fragmented and is unable to focus. And too oftentimes, we focus on too many ways, too many other things. Lynn is about narrowing our focus down to the cross, the ways of God. When we become focused on too many things, we become discouraged and disappointed and live ineffective lives. Lent brings us into focus on the cross. Jesus is focused on the cross. And for you and I to make this journey together, it's going to take some courage, some courage. You know, I think there's three kinds of courage. There's foolish courage like lion taming or jumping out of a perfectly safe airplane just for the fun of it. Or there's momentary courage that comes in the heat of the battle when you got to step up in the moment. And then there's something called focus courage. It's courage for what's coming. We've all experienced that kind of courage. We know that something's coming. Maybe it's a surgery. Maybe we're getting a report about a disease. Maybe there's a change in our life, a crisis point. And with God's help, we find a focused courage. Jesus had a focused courage as he looked to the horizon and could see the cross before him. He was still determined to go. Now, in high school, I was not a very large student, I was very small. I was uh, not very popular, and probably because of those two things, I was not a very good student. I was drifting and in danger of getting lost in the shuffle of life. My older sister had already left home and turned to drugs. I had no resolve. I had no real course of action. But then I met Jesus. I met Jesus, and he came into my life. He took away my fear of dying. And for the first time ever in my life, I had a resolve. I had a reason to live. I had a real purpose and a definite direction. I remember early on in becoming a follower of Jesus, I decided that I would carry my Bible to school. Now, again, that was long before book bags. So you had your books and then you put your Bible on top of it. Now, for somebody who wasn't very popular, (laughs) that probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. But I was determined to be a follower of Jesus. And back in those days, in the early 70s, we would wear buttons, you know, that people would wear protest buttons. And so I had some buttons that said Jesus on them. I was determined to be a witness for Christ. He had given me this purpose, this new identity, this new direction. My friends and I began to work uh, in forming Christian coffee houses in the surrounding churches. 
And we would go on Friday and Saturday nights and, and do all these decorations and invite these Christian contemporary bands to come in and people with guitars and, and play music that nobody had ever heard before. And we were hoping that others would come to know Jesus. We had a determined purpose. I was a new person. I had a new passion. My grades went up. My life changed direction. And for the first time, I had courage in myself. I believed with God's help, I could make a difference in the world. Now, I didn't make it through high school alone. I walked with Jesus. And then Jesus brought people into my life. People that mentored me. People that discipled me. People that encouraged me along the way. I was never alone once I committed my life to Jesus. As I look back over these 23 years of ministry, God has given me a strong resolve to build a ministry that would impact children and youth and families for this community and this world. I remember walking in that little sanctuary up there on the corner many years ago, and God says, let's be a prayer-driven church. And we began to be a prayer-driven church, but I never did it alone. Every step of the way, God was with me, Jesus was with me, and he provided you. He provided people all along the way. As I look across this congregation, I can see people that were here 23 years ago. Ed, you and Sarah were here 20, 23 years ago. I remember having a, a youth pool party, and we had it at your house. You know, we had a, an event there. And, and all along the way, God has provided every step of the way people to help us keep the resolve to win this community for Christ. And it continues even today. The courage and the faith, the resolve, the determination of this congregation is truly amazing. The impact you're having for the cause of Christ is unprecedented in the United Methodist Church here in South Carolina. The cross is being lifted up and God is becoming more famous and God is being glorified and God is being talked about because of your resolve and your determination. Now again, that's many of you in this room, but the good news is all of us can get involved in that. All of us can get involved in the mission to make disciples who become mature, who mobilize, and who seek to glorify God in worship. God has a plan for this church. Over these next 36 days, will you endeavor to begin to walk in the way of the cross? Because this is not even a fraction of what God is about to do. There is so much more that God is, has yet to do in this place. You know, Jesus, when he set his face toward Jerusalem, he didn't do it alone. He shared his plan with the disciples. He spoke some strong words to them in chapter 9, verse 21 of Luke's gospel. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The son of man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, say it with me. You must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You must give up your own way and follow me. Take up your cross. That's the challenge that all of us have faced here today. As you talk about the way, the way of the cross, in order to get on that path, you and I must give up our own way, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Now, this journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus was located at, would have taken three days. But Jesus took six months. Six months to spend time with his disciples, 
to teach them and prepare them and to show them how to walk the way to the cross, a way that they would walk for the rest of their lives, the way of the cross. So over these next six weeks, I invite you to journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. Will you join us on a journey to the cross? In your bulletins where your notes are at are weekly scripture readings taken from Luke 9 through chapter 19, reading about the journey of Jesus, reading about his encounters, reading about rejection, reading about roadblocks, reading about opportunities, these same kinds of experiences you will have during your journey to the cross. Now I'll tell you, if you decide to make this journey, it won't be an easy one. If you take seriously the words of Jesus, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow. But I want you to know that when we step out and follow Jesus, we never do it alone. We walk with him and we walk in community. We walk with others. And I'd encourage small groups, Sunday school classes, ministries in our church to walk together. Let's strive to walk together these next 36 days in the way of the cross. I shared on Wednesday night at Ash Wednesday that whatever you decide to give up, whatever you decide to start doing during the Lenten season, share with somebody. This idea that you need to keep it secret, I don't know where that came from. I, I shared with my wife, Lynn, here are the three things that I'm doing for Lent. I need to tell you so you can hold me accountable. I told some of our staff, here's the three things that I'm doing for Lent. You guys help hold me accountable. See, we do these things in community with each other. And as we embark on this great adventure, this great challenge, there's so much we can learn from Jesus. So I want to encourage you to read daily these scripture readings. But what we learn from Jesus is that he had an unexpected resolve, an unexpected resolve. The disciples expected Jesus to be the Messiah who would establish a political kingdom, a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans, and they did not see a cross on the horizons. Jesus' words to them were unexpected, that he would suffer, that he would be crucified, and on the third day, he would rise again. Their plan was much smaller. God's plan was much bigger. His plan was to establish and reestablish the kingdom of God. He didn't come to establish a political kingdom. We live in a world today where people are getting really hung up on political kingdoms. There's so much conversation in our world today about political kingdoms. Now, again, I believe we're called to be good citizens. We're called to be involved in the political process. But as Christians, our focus is on the cross. Our focus is on God, who at the end of everything, when everything comes to an end, he will still be in charge. And we need to trust in his sovereignty and in his kingdom as we live our lives here on the planet an unexpected resolve to become the savior who would become the bridge to provide a way for you and me to have a personal relationship with God. It was unexpected that Jesus would rent the veil in two at the temple, that Jesus would be the source of intimate contact with God. The disciples did not expect that. As you begin this journey, there will be things in your life that will happen that will be unexpected. If you walk the way of the cross, you will find yourself loving people that you didn't think you could love. Reaching out to people that you didn't think you could reach out to. And following Jesus, there'll be some unexpected things that he'll ask you to do that you've never done before. You might find yourself serving in a ministry that you never thought you would serve in. 
You may find yourself praying longer than you ever thought you would pray. An unexpected resolve. But secondly, I see in Jesus an unwavering resolve. His mission would not be deterred by the crowds and the culture who are looking for a different kind of Messiah. I want you to hear that. The crowds and the culture were looking for a different kind of Messiah. But Jesus had an unwavering resolve to God's mission and God's plan. He would not be wavered by the pain of rejection, by the suffering of the crucifixion. Unwavering resolve is rooted in God's character and God's faithfulness. Our God has an unwavering resolve to love you. Our God has an unwavering resolve to keep a covenant relationship with his people. It's a faith that doesn't sink when the going gets tough. Unwavering faith doesn't cave into the culture and this crazy postmodern world that believes truth is relative. We don't cave in to whatever feels good. We don't cave in to whatever somebody else says is truth. We believe that the Bible is a source of absolute truth. And we don't cave in to the culture. That, we don't waver. And so over these days, I would ask you to not waver in your faith. Don't waver in the truth. Don't compromise the integrity of God's promises and God's word. That's unwavering. Unwavering faith will help you withstand delays and disappointments and failures. We will believe that God is capable and able to help us face all the trials and the tests and the tribulations along the way. We need a church today that has an unwavering resolve. That doesn't just go with the latest, latest fad, the latest, greatest. We need to be resolved to stand on the word of God. Can I get a second of that? Amen. Amen. Thirdly, that Jesus had an unparalleled resolve to love the world. To love the world. I love what Jesus said in John 15, 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, Jesus spoke these words hours before he went to the cross for you and for me. No greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. See, the cross is God's picture of unparalleled, unconditional love. That's our example. Unparalleled love. First John says it this way, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Now read this last, this verse 11 with me. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. I tell you, the way of the cross will involve loving people. The way of the cross is to love our noisy neighbors and our difficult coworkers. The way of the cross is to love the homeless, the sick, the elderly, the least of these. And the only way the church is going to change the world is we resolve to love a messy and inconvenient world. We live in a messy and an inconvenient world. And we can shut ourselves up or we can love the world. We can love the people of the world. You know, and that's impossible for you to do on your own. It is impossible to love a messy and inconvenient world without the love of God. First John is clear. You love, we love because he first loved us. This morning, will you embrace the love of God? Will you walk the way of love, the way of the cross? And you will begin to do unexpected things. You will begin to love in an unwavering way. We must never forget that God's love is deeper than our doubts, stronger than our sin, 
and greater than our guilt, unparalleled. And you and I, with God's help, will change the world when we love the way that Jesus loves. Not on conditions, but unconditionally love people. Folks, if we will have an unexpected resolve, an unwavering resolve, an unparalleled love, unparalleled love, we will be unstoppable. Jesus was unstoppable. The disciples tried to talk him out of going to Jerusalem, but the cross was before him. He was focused. He was committed. And not even death on the cross would stop him. Today, we live as Easter people because of the resurrection. Unstoppable. Do you believe you're unstoppable with God's help? Do we believe that God's church, the body of Christ, whether it's Mount Horb or any other church in this town or churches all across the globe, do we truly believe this morning the church is unstoppable? Are we anemic and afraid to step out into the world and love and serve? I believe the church is unstoppable and not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church of God. Amen? power of God among us. One of my favorite verses I've really been dwelling on in our small group, Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Unstoppable. I believe that's a turning point in your life when you believe that God is for you. When you believe that God is for you and not against you, it's a turning point. Jesus turned toward the cross because he knew that God was for him. And that God would walk with him and God would raise him from the dead. No matter what disease you face, no matter what challenge you face, God is for you. And God will not let you down. And God will walk with you every step of the way. He sent his son to die for you. He's for you. Oswald Chambers coined a great word. You won't be able to find it in spell check. I tried. I don't know if I can even pronounce it or not. It's unconquerableness. Unconquerableness. He goes on to say that no power on earth or in hell can conquer the spirit of God in a human spirit. Let me read that again. No power on earth or in hell can conquer the spirit of God in a human spirit. That's a great word for us today. If you have the spirit of God in you, there is no power on earth and no power in hell that can conquer you. Paul said it this way. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. This church will be unstoppable as long as we stay centered in the Spirit of God. Now, as we go along the way, we're going to meet some resistance. And right out of the gate, Jesus and his disciples run into persecution, run into rejection, and so will you. I want to be clear. When you say, okay, for the next 36 days, I'm going to walk the way of the cross. I'm going to, I'm going to love like Jesus loves. You're going to meet some resistance. And right out of the gate, we find these words. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem, heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? <laughs> How about a missile strike, Jesus? Let's just wipe these people out here, right? <laughs> but Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went to another village. Now, again, there's a lot of history about Jews and Samaritans, and it was not a popular thing for Jews to head to Jerusalem. Samaritans had a different view on that. There was a lot of tension. But the disciples did not yet understand Jesus' mission. Isn't it good to know that? That even though disciples don't understand the mission of God, 
and they don't always get things right, that doesn't disqualify them from being a disciple. I'm telling you, as you begin your journey to follow Jesus, you're not always going to get things right. But that won't disqualify you from being a disciple. He will say to you, all right, let's try again. <laughs> let's go to another town. Let's start over again. That's grace that we all receive from him. But how often does persecution or rejection lead to thoughts of retaliation? We've all been, we've all been guilty of that, right? I want to get even. We'll show them. Sick them. How many of you prayed and asked God to sick people, right? You know, just sick them, Lord. Take them out. Send some fire down from heaven. I want to be clear that Jesus came to save the lost, not burn them up with fire. Okay? And your mission, my mission, is to love them into the kingdom and not send missile strikes against them. His mission is to set things right with a cross and not a sword. The disciples, some of them were armed. We found out later when Jesus was arrested, Peter had a sword. And Jesus had to heal a soldier's ear because that was not the mission. It was about a cross, not a sword. But then what follows next is three conversations with would-be followers of Jesus. Three good things that can get in the way of being a disciple. As I go over these very quickly this morning, maybe these are some good things that are going on in your life that are keeping you from becoming a true disciple of Jesus. As you're walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I would say that we have a little over 4,000 members in our church. And all 4,000 members that have joined this church have made a commitment to follow Jesus. You did it with your, you said you would be faithful in your prayers, in your presence, uh, in your attendance, in your giving, in your service, and your witness. All of you said that who are members of this church. 4,000 strong. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What gets in the way of our discipleship is our priorities. Our priorities get in the way. You know, Jesus doesn't soft sell discipleship. He wants first place in your life. Now, there's nothing wrong with houses and homes. But when houses and homes become more important than Jesus, that's a problem. Whenever the things in our life become more important than Jesus, it's a problem. When we can't serve because we've got too many things going on in our life, that's a problem. When we can't be a generous person because we've got too many things that we're being generous to other than God, that is a problem in our lives. It's about priorities. You know, Jesus doesn't want to be one of many things in our life. He wants to be first in our lives. And too oftentimes we struggle being a disciple because we try to balance Jesus with everything else. And sometimes he gets leftovers and sometimes he gets second. Sometimes he gets fourth. Occasionally he gets first. But to be a true disciple, he says, put me first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all things, he says, will be added unto you. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The word that jumps out to me here is procrastination. This would-be follower, this would-be disciple gave conditions for his discipleship. I'll follow you, Jesus, when? I'll follow you, Jesus, after I take care of some things I need to get done. There's some things in my life that I need to do. And when I get all those things done, then I will follow you. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with funerals. But what, a, what scholars believe is going on here is this man's father hadn't died. Because if he had died, they would have had an immediate funeral. But this man's father was probably ill. And this would-be disciple wanted to stay home and live in the comfort of his father's home until his dad died, until he collected his inheritance. And then, then, I'll follow Jesus. William Barclay says this about this passage. The man in the story had stirrings in his heart to get out of his spiritually dead surroundings. There was something stirring in his heart to get out of his spiritually dead surroundings. There are people here today that you know the way that you're walking is not working. And God's spirit is stirring in your heart to say, there's another way. And you're thinking, man, I'd like to walk that way, but I'd like to walk that way when I'd like to walk that way then. Barclay goes, to, goes on to say, but if he missed that moment, he would never get out. There are some of you, I'm afraid, who may never get out because you keep delaying and you keep waiting and you keep procrastinating. I am so thankful by the grace of God that I did not delay accepting Jesus. I did not delay giving him my life. I did not delay getting started in ministry and serving him. And hopefully one day when I stand before him and I give an account of my life, I will hear those cherished words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. One day you will stand before God. He will ask you, why did you delay? Why did you put off the decision to follow me? Make me first in your life. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, that seems like a good thing to do. But there are things in our lives that can hold us from going forward. That we hold on to, we won't let go. We keep looking back and trying to live in the past. Now, I believe we should celebrate the past, but not stay in the past. And our password for this journey over these next 30, 36 days is forward, not backwards. Will you step out and go forward for the cause of Christ? Sometimes our fear of failure paralyzes us from letting go and following Jesus. Some of you are living guarded lives, living in fear. I would call you today to follow the way of the cross and live in faith. So are you living in fear or are you living by faith? Hebrews eleven six says that it's impossible to please God without faith. Fear does not please God, but faith pleases God. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with houses. There's nothing wrong with funerals. There's nothing wrong with gardens. You know, sometimes we think that to follow Jesus, I've got to give up all the bad things in my life. And we make a list of the bad things in our lives to follow Jesus. But I want you to hear this, that Jesus doesn't just want the bad things in our lives. He wants the best things in our lives. He wants the best things. He wants us to use our best things to honor him and to glorify him. I love this quote. Jesus claims authority, priority over the best, not just the worst. Have you given God your best or are you just giving him your worst? He wants your best to change the world. 
Julie Aftab was a 16-year-old working as an operator in a tiny public call office in Pakistan. When a man walked in and saw a silver cross dangling from her neck, he asked her three times, are you a Christian? Julie said, yes, sir, the first two times. And then the third time she got frustrated. Didn't you hear me? I said, yes, I am a Christian. The two argued and the men left and returned 40 minutes later with a small turquoise bottle. Julie tried to block the arc of the battery acid, but it melted much of the right side of her face, left her, left, left her with deep burns on her chest and her arms. She ran for the door, but a second man grabbed her hair and they poured acid down her throat, searing her esophagus. Twelve years later, 31 surgeries later, Julie is an accounting major at the University of Houston, Clear Lake. She spoke no English when she arrived in the U.S., but is now a U.S. citizen. Doctors in Houston donated their time to reconstruct her face. And over time, she's learned to talk and laugh and learn to forgive. And she says these remarkable words. Those people, those people who think they did a bad thing to me, they brought me closer to God. They helped me fulfill my dreams. I never imagined I could be the person I am today. That's resolve. That's taking up your cross and following Jesus. Now, you may be here today and you may have resolved to follow Jesus in the past and you failed. The Bible is full of people who have failed in their resolve to follow Jesus. Some of the great leaders in the Bible failed in their resolve. Moses David, Peter, <laughs> the night he even knew Jesus. I would say that most everyone in this room has failed at some time or another in your resolve to follow Jesus. And that's where grace comes in. Grace greater than our failures. Grace greater than our sins. You know, God always comes through for us, even when we don't come through for him. God always comes through for us, even when we don't come through for him. Maybe you're here today and your life is without meaning. Your life was out, was, is without direction. You've been going your own way. Today's a good day to invite Jesus into your journey. He can change your life. He can give you a new resolve to live a new life. He can change your life today. I'm going to ask Jack to come and we're going to sing a stanza of I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. It's a song I sang when I was 14 years old, when I gave my life to Jesus. And we began to sing that in Christian coffee houses around our city. Many of you have decided to follow Jesus already. I was, again, moved and blessed when I saw people after people after people after people coming on Ash Wednesday, coming to have ashes put on their forehead and say, I want to follow the way of the cross. So this morning, I'm going to ask people all across this congregation, I'm going to invite everybody in this congregation to step up and say, over these next 36 days, I'm committed. I'm in. I'm going to follow the way of the cross. And if you've never given your life to Christ, there's never a better time than right now. So I want to say a prayer. Jack's going to uh, lead us in a, core, I mean, a, a verse in a course. And I, as he does, I'm going to ask you all to come and stand in front of this church. And it's going to be incredible what this church can do in this community and this world if for the next 36 days we will follow the way of the cross. Now, if you're able to come, I would invite you to come. Gracious God, speak into our hearts today. Show us 
that you're for us, that you love us and you gave your son to die for us, that you want to forgive our sins, you want to forgive our failures, you want to give us a resolve to follow you. And I just pray that all across this campus this morning, people are making a decision to follow Jesus. As we stand and sing and as we come forward, give us courage, give us faith, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.